Many people argue that the Bible is simply an historical book. They don't see it as being divinely inspired as the church has for thousands of years. Much of what we read in the Bible, they say, may be true, but when it comes to to miracles and other things, well, those are either lies, mistakes, or, or errors. One area that many skeptics like to focus on is the seemingly failed promises in Scripture. There are many out there who argue that Jesus and the apostles expected for Jesus to return within the apostles' lifetime. And they point to passages where Jesus talks about returning before this generation passes away. Or they point simply to the urgency and the expectancy of the apostles that we find in the epistles. Professor Bart Ehrman, he was once a a devout Christian, but through his study of textual criticism and the scriptures, he now claims to be agnostic, if not atheist altogether. In an interview, when asked about the end times and Jesus' return, he said that Christians throughout all of church history have believed that we are in the end times. And they are all wrong. Here's a quote from the interview. He says, the point though is that this view of Christ's return actually does go back to the historical Jesus. Jesus also predicted that the end was going to come within his generation, and of course, it didn't. Sometimes, even, even many well-meaning Christians struggle with the end times. Many Christians, sort of on the opposite end of the spectrum, they have things mapped out in detailed plans and they have timelines for how everything is going to go down. But then there's other Christians who sincerely wonder to themselves, why hasn't he returned yet? Why hasn't the restoration of all things come to pass yet? I want to ask you, is there anything that we can look to in the present to assure us of God's promises in the future? Has there been anything that has happened that shows us that maybe God doesn't always work in the way that we expect him to? Last week, if you remember, we discussed the healing of the lame beggar. This crippled man, he sat outside of the temple in front of what was called the the beautiful gate day after day, and he would ask people for money, and everyone recognized him. Everyone knew him. And then, one day, Peter and John are walking by, and the man asked for money from them, but Peter, instead, using the name of Jesus, heals this man, and he begins to walk and leap around the temple. And everyone saw him. And that's where our verse picks up now. 
Verse 11 says, While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. So the people at the temple understood that something very significant was going on. So they came, they gathered around Peter and John and the healed man. There's this, uh, this tradition that sort of, it, it traced the colonnade or the portico of Solomon back to Solomon himself. But many scholars, they claim that that tradition is unfounded and was unfounded given that Solomon's temple didn't have a platform that went that far to the east. But nevertheless, what's happening in this text is that everyone has gathered now on a covered porch and they're wanting to know what has just taken place with this lame beggar. If we remember back to Acts 2 when the apostles were all speaking in tongues, everyone could tell it was a miracle and many Jews had gathered around the apostles and they asked the question, what does this mean? Sort of the same thing is going on here. This miracle has given Peter, those in the temple, he has their full attention. In verse 12, Peter gives a response by first asking a question. He says, men of Israel, Why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? So the crowds, they might have thought that Peter and John, they probably thought that these two were just amazing. Maybe these are new prophets or something else. And you have to think for a second, if you're Peter and John, you can only imagine the temptation it might have, uh, what the temptation might have felt like to accept their praise. But instead, Peter tells them what has really happened in verses 13 to 15. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all. So Peter begins his response by mentioning the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And this is a direct quote from Exodus 3. And this would have immediately brought into mind the Exodus themes for the hearers. The God in the burning bush who freed his people from slavery is the same God doing this act in front of their eyes freeing people from their bondage to a fallen world and to sin. Peter describes Jesus in three ways. First, he's described as the innocent servant. And there's no doubt that that theme of an innocent servant would have brought to mind Isaiah 53, the chapter about a great humble servant of God who has struck for the sins of, not his own sins, but the sins of the people, and the people are forgiven as a result. Jesus is also described as the author of life. We get this theme more so in the book of John, but all the New Testament writers definitely believed that Jesus was the one who gave life to and created all things. 
And as we mentioned in the announcements, you can see this, this great paradox in that they killed the author of life. The author of life experienced death. And the third description is that he is holy. He is the holy and just one. And all throughout Isaiah, this is another theme from Isaiah, um, there's this talk of a, of a holy and just one to come. What we can see from these descriptions is that Peter is attempting to richly ground Jesus to the Jewish scriptures. He's been there all along. This is according to God's plan all along. And Peter says that the Jewish people, that they took God's servant, the author of life, the holy and just one, and they gave him to Pontius Pilate. If you remember in the Gospels, after Jesus' mockery of a trial, they tied him up and they took him to Pilate to be killed because the Jews weren't allowed to practice capital punishment. And Peter says that the Jews denied Jesus. If we can remember back to 1 Samuel 7, the Jewish people had said that they wanted a king like the other nations. What they were doing was they were rejecting God as their king. And in the Gospels, they do the exact same thing when God comes in the flesh and Jesus, fully man, fully God, stands there in front of them and Pilate asks the crowd, shall I crucify your king? And they respond to Pilate by saying, we have no king but Caesar. They deny Jesus. And Peter goes on and takes it even further. He's like putting salt in the wound. Saying that when they were given the option, they chose a murderer to be released instead of the innocent servant. And of course, he's referring to Barabbas, who Luke mentions in his Gospels and here in Acts that he was guilty of murder. But the crowds, they hated Jesus so much that they chose for Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. That was the depth of their hatred. They would rather brutally kill an innocent man than one convicted of murder. And this Jesus, whom all of this has just happened in the past month, a little bit longer, Peter tells them that God raised them, raised him from the dead. And he says that me, Peter, and the other apostles, that, that we are witnesses to this. You guys killed Jesus. You chose Barabbas over him. You delivered him over to Pilate. You hated him. He was the holy and just one. He was the innocent servant. We watched God raise him from the dead. We've seen him. He's alive. And Peter says that it's through faith in his name, faith in the name of Jesus, that is why and how this man has been healed. This work of healing was only done by faith in Jesus. And the crowds, they wanted to give Peter and John the credit, but Peter says the credit, all of the glory, all of it belongs to the resurrected Lord. 
So if what Peter is saying is true, then that means that the Jewish people are in trouble. Because they killed Jesus, because, but he was actually God's Messiah, the one that's been raised from the dead. And I want us to also notice the consistency of Peter's sermon so far. In, chapters, in chapter 2, he tells the crowd, crowds that listened to him that day, that they are also guilty of crucifying the resurrected Messiah. So before he ever gives them any kind of good news, he starts with the bad news. Verses 11 to 16 are functioning in three ways. They are setting the scene. They are giving an explanation for the healing. And also, they are showing the Jewish people, Peter's hearers, he's showing them their guilt. Let's go on. Peter continues in verses 17 to 18. And now, brothers... I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ who would suffer, he thus fulfilled. So Peter tells them that they acted in ignorance. They were ignorant because they didn't know who they were crucifying. And they also didn't understand the degree or the extent of the wickedness that they were partaking in. But even though they were ignorant, that doesn't take away their guilt. He also says that the, the rulers, they were also ignorant and guilty as well. But here is a mystery with what Peter's saying. It was a part of God's plan all along. The Jewish people, Pontius Pilate, the religious leaders, they did the evil actions of calling out for his blood and having him sent to be crucified. They were guilty for handing over Jesus, denying him, but they were carrying out God's plan the entire time. He says that all of this was foretold by the mouth of the prophets. And so in verse 19, Peter offers these Jews the same offer that he gave to the Jews and the proselytes in Acts 2 in his first sermon. Repent. He says, repent therefore and turn back. Repentance means having a, a changed mind and a heart about a sinful pattern or lifestyle. And that inner change in heart and mind results in seeing changed actions. It's not just something that's in our head. If there's truly, true repentance in the heart and in the mind, we'll see it in the things we do with our hands and with our mouth. But there is something different from Peter's first sermon and this sermon. In the first sermon in Acts 2, he says, repent and be baptized. And because of that, some people say that that is a necessary act, baptism, to be forgiven, to be justified, to receive the Holy Spirit. But here Peter doesn't mention baptism at all. We talked about it last sermon, but Peter doesn't mention that here because it's not. Baptism is not a, is not, uh, a step to be forgiven. It's not, we aren't forgiven through baptism or receive the Holy Spirit through baptism. Peter goes on in verses 19 to 21. He says that your sins 
maybe blotted out. That the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So Peter tells them that three things will happen if they repent. The first thing that will happen is that their sins will be blotted out. One scholar sort of gave this illustration of, uh, of sins being blotted out to a, a marker board with, with lots of markings on it and just, just it all just being raced away, erased away. All of our sins have been wiped away or their sins will be wiped away if they repent. Their entire record the, the, the yelling out, crucify him. The anger in their heart for, and the bloodthirstiness, all of that will be forgiven. The entire record of that debt completely gone. The second thing Peter says will happen is that they will have times of refreshing these times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord comes from the joy and the strength and the faith that the Holy Spirit works in a believer's heart when they repent and believe the gospel. And in the prophets, the times of refreshing refer to the entire age of salvation. And last... But not least in the future, Peter says that God will send the Messiah. He says, though, for now, heaven must receive him. And Peter needed to make that point clear because the Jews had expected for the Messiah to come and to reign on the earth. And Peter's not saying that he's not going to reign on the earth, but he's saying that just, that just because right now he's not reigning on the earth, that doesn't discredit him as being the Messiah. Temporarily, heaven must receive him. And Jesus, Peter says, will remain in heaven until the restoration of all things. What is the restoration of of all things. I, I love these sort of themes in scripture and I could really geek out on this right now, but I'm gonna just keep it to a, a couple points. We could say that the restoration of all things, the new creation is the driving force behind all of scripture, perhaps the, the central theme of scripture. From the time of the fall, the rest of scripture is about creation being restored with places, uh, very explicit promises for that coming in places like Isaiah 65. And notice that at once, Peter talks about a promise of future restoration, but also the promise of refreshment. Promise of refreshment. An illustration I heard was that uh, I guess there's some sort of companies that they'll, they'll uh, organize and plan and, uh, and, and lead sort of long hikes and journeys through, through trails and mountains and, and things like that. And one scholar says that they were headed out to a particular destination, but along the way they ran out of supplies and out of water, and they still had a long way to go. And things started to get really bad. And they were so thirsty and hungry and they could barely go any further. But then all of a sudden, a jeep shows up. And he brings a pallet of supplies to help them along the way. To get them to their destination. 
That's sort of what Peter's saying here. Yes, the rest of all, restoration of all things is going to happen in the future, but God will give us, us pilgrims, us Christians, refreshment along the way. Um, you can see this. You ever read Pilgrim's Progress, you can, you can see that on his way um, to the city, there's so many times, so many places where he stops, he meets a friend, uh, he has somebody come encourage him. He has uh, uh, something else that happens. He has victory in a, in a specific area in his life. These are the refreshments that the Lord helps us. Helps us with along the way to the eternal state. And Peter also, he said that the prophets spoke about God. Fulfilling all of his promises in scripture unexpectedly through Jesus. Jesus is a stumbling stone, a plot twist. People weren't expecting it. The Jewish people weren't expecting that. And Peter, to demonstrate this point, the fact that Jesus was a part of the plan all along, points out some of the big names of Scripture. And he begins with Moses. When Moses had spoken about a, a prophet that God would raise up after him. And Moses said, listen to God's prophet or be destroyed. Peter also mentions how Samuel spoke about the days that the apostles and the church that they're currently in today. Samuel is looking forward to the age, this age of salvation. And just notice for a second how Peter reads scripture like a story, starting with Moses, going to Samuel. And now he's about to go to the person God first started working with all along, Abraham. God promised Abraham that through him and his descendants that there would come this, this worldwide blessing. And Israel was the first step to bring about the restoration of all things. They were God's instrument to save the world. But as we go on, we see that Israel itself is part of the problem. And so then new promises begin coming through prophets like Isaiah that God is going to first restore Israel and then Israel will restore the world. God will restore Israel through one man, and then Israel will be restored, and then Israel will restore the world, which is exactly what we've been seeing in Acts, and will see in Acts, that Jesus came to the Jews, and now the Jews are going to the world. And because Peter knows this, he says in verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first, saved through servant, servant came to you first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your own wickedness. So if he came to the Jews first, obviously there's going to someone else second. Those days promised to you Jews throughout scripture are breaking into the world now through the work of the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus is at the center of God's plan to save you in the world. So the point is that through this miracle, it testifies to Peter's message that though unexpected, Jesus is at the center of God's plan. An application point, God keeps his promises in ways that we don't expect. God keeps his promises in ways that we don't expect. In the first century, the Jewish people, they were waiting for a powerful political conquering Messiah 
from reading 2 Samuel 7, Daniel 7, and 2 Temple Jewish literature, they had come to believe that this Messiah was going to conquer the country that oppressed them and that Israel would rule over the world. But Jesus was a stumbling block. The Messiah should come and oppose Rome. But instead of telling them to quit paying taxes to Caesar, he says, give, it, give to him what's his. Instead of telling his people to take up the sword to wipe out the Romans, he told people to love their enemies and to do good to those who hate them. And as one author said, to bring in his kingdom, the what we would expect for Jesus to do, he doesn't do. He doesn't send in the tanks and the bombs, the missiles, the guns. He sends in the meek and the humble and the peacemakers. And through them, his kingdom expands and the world is quietly changed. And lastly, what was most perplexing of all of this, the most unexpected part of Jesus being at the center of God's plan, is that he ends up dying to the very ones that he was expected to defeat. Jesus would have been almost the exact opposite of what they would have expected of the Messiah. They wanted someone ruling mightily and perhaps with arrogance. They didn't expect a humble, dying king. But Jesus was God's Messiah and the people could see all of that through Peter's speech and it was confirmed by the healing of the lame beggar. They could see that this Jesus that they crucified was God's Messiah and he came in a way that they didn't expect. And now for us, Peter promised to them and to us the restoration of all things. And there are people today who scoff at that promise. Bar Ehrman, as we talked about earlier, atheists and, and many others, they think that the time has passed for that promise to come true. And so Jesus was a false prophet. And what they are saying is that God has to fulfill what he said in the way that they expect or the Bible simply is a history book. Nothing more. A lot of false history at that, they would say. But when we go to other areas of scriptures, the apostles told us that during the last days, many will be scoffers. Peter said that many's going to say, Where is the promise? of his coming. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. And that's exactly what we see in atheists and people like airmen. They're asking, where is the sign of his coming? 
we shouldn't be surprised. If we can see that God has beautifully fulfilled his promises through Jesus in an unexpected way, we should also hold our eschatology and our beliefs about God's restore or restoring all things, we should hold that loosely. There are some people that think that they have everything figured out. Some of us have timelines, charts, charts, people who they theorize to be the Antichrist, and so on. But Scripture teaches us that things don't always work out the way that we think it will. And we need to leave room about some of these beliefs. But Scripture isn't the only place we can know that his promises will be fulfilled, but also by the times of refreshment that we get in the present. In our text, Peter said that if the Jews repent, they will, see, see, uh, they will receive times of refreshment through the presence of the Lord. A lot of us, we can remember back to when we first became believers and for many of us, it was as if heaven, the heavens themselves, we can say such a thing, opened up and God poured the entirety of heaven into our hearts. Paul said in Romans 5 that the Holy Spirit has poured the love of God into our hearts. And as D.A. Carson has said, this is Christianity felt. Though the depth and the extent of joy and grace that comes at conversion happens less often and with less intensity after we've been in the faith for a while, there are still many times of refreshment along the way. Christian had many places to stop and help him along the journey. There are going to be days where we're feeling like David said, that he feels dry like a potsherd. But then there's going to be days where God picks us back up and sets us up again on the rock. There are going to be times that we're going to want to give up on the journey altogether. But as we sang this morning, Jesus will hold us fast and the Spirit will give us just enough to keep on going. Every time you're getting wore out, you're getting worn thin, and you just want to pull your hair out and give up, he gives you a little bit more refreshment and a little bit more and a little bit more until you make it home. Application point two. True, lasting, mighty works are only done in Jesus' name. In our text, we see that it wasn't Peter or John who healed this man, but the man was healed through their faith in Jesus' name. Now, we might not have the gift of healing, but every man or woman of God who's ever done something significant and lasting for the kingdom does it through faith in Jesus. Now, you're probably going to hear me talk about George Mueller often the more you get to know me because I'm just fascinated with that man's life. I have no idea why he's less known than people like Mother Teresa and others. But for decades, this man took care of thousands of orphans. 
And what is amazing is that he never at one point in his life asked someone for a dime to help take care of these orphans. And in fact, he worked with no pay and no salary, not asking a dime for anybody. All he would do is every day he would pray. He would just pray. And there are so many just amazing, miraculous, ridiculous stories of people, of how he came into contact with money, with people he don't even know just coming up to him and say, I, I just put, put on my heart to give you this. It's 500 bucks. Uh, finding money here, milk truck crashing with a meat truck in the street. Uh, not truck, but a cart crashing in the street so that they can eat. And for decades, these thousands of orphans asking for no money to come in, all prayer, never once went without a meal. They always had clothing. They always had shoes. They always ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And amazing as that is, amazing as Mueller's faith was, he would have been the first to admit that the only reason any of the mighty works that he did, any of what he did happened and was possible because of his faith in Jesus. Any of the great people that we read about in church history, they all did these great works through faith in Jesus' name. And that's not to say that, that non-believers can also do some great things. But if it's not through faith in Jesus and for his glory, it will not last. There are a lot of philanthropists and others who do a lot of amazing things. But believers who do something that seems significantly less, at least in, in magnitude, if they do it through Jesus... And out of love for him and for his glory, it will last and is a greater and more lasting work than what an unbeliever can do. Than anything an unbeliever can do. So go and do mighty works through faith in Jesus. Step out and share your faith with people. Write scripture verses on note cards. Pray over them. Pass them out at the store and put them on the, the, the tables at coffee shops and restaurants. And if God has so put it on your heart, adopt a child, build a shelter, or whatever. It's through these kinds of works that you will receive many great rewards. I'm convinced that there's going to be so many people in the eternal state that we've never heard of. And we're going to ask, who is that person that has so many jewels in their crown? These aren't going to just be the Luthers or the Spurgeons or the MacArthur's or Pipers. There's going to be a lot of seemingly insignificant people that we've never heard of quietly, patiently, consistently loving others and bearing fruit for God and only for him in places only he can see and in ways only he knows. We're going to ask in the new heavens and the new earth who is that woman or who is that man that God has put in charge over ten cities? I believe 
There's going to be so many widows and others, people who are always looking to encourage people, and those in third world countries and, and missionaries who, who preach on dirt floors, who be rewarded for the mighty works that they've done in Jesus' name. Many of you and many of these people may seem insignificant and overlooked by Christians and even the world, but the king sees all that you do. It doesn't go unnoticed. It is through faith in Jesus' name. When you work, do works in Jesus' name, the king is pleased. And here's a quick third application. And this is sort of tied to the, the first sermon as well. And the sermons later we'll see. But there's a consistency of the gospel message. We need to see the consistency of the gospel message. So Peter, in his first sermon, in this sermon, and uh, other sermons we're going to see, he has preached sin, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and then, so partly bad news and good news tied in together so far, and then he tells his hearers that they need to repent. He tells them that the, res the response that they need to do and we should be preaching the gospel in a similar way. If you're listening in today and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus or you're on the fence, I would ask you that you would consider Jesus this morning. What's holding you back? What's tying you up? Maybe you've heard some of the promises in Scripture and thought, this is hard to believe. Or, 2,000 years have gone by and this still hasn't come to pass. But I want to remind you that Jesus Christ has been raised. And there are many in the early church who have seen him risen from the dead and many who have seen the miracles done in his name. And the word of God is our witness and testimony, is, I mean, the word of God is their witness and testimony to what they've seen about Jesus and what they've done in Jesus' name. Jesus will come again. And when he does, if you're not right with him, you will pay for your transgressions. You will be cast away into outer darkness, into a lake of fire that never, ever, ever stops burning. There will never be even a second of refreshment. You will constantly and overwhelmingly feel abandoned and the suffering will be so great that you won't even believe that you can endure. That'll never end. But when Jesus died on the cross... He was a perfect, spotless sacrifice that paid the entire penalty that our sins deserve. The eternal penalty that we would pay was paid for by Jesus on the cross. God can be a just God. We can be forgiven. 
And you can partake in that forgiveness if you repent. Change your mind and your heart about sin and turn to Jesus Christ. He will save you. He will forgive you. Call out to him. He will not fail you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for another week. Thank you for the resurrected Lord, your son. Thank you for sending a king that's so unlike us and so different from our expectations. Thank you, Father, for having a word that that I know that if I was living during that time, I would not see it. I would have just went through and came to a similar conclusion that the Jews did. But looking back on it now, it's so clear, it's so obvious, it's everywhere. And it was meant to be like that. It was meant to be unexpected. You said that you're, you're laying a stumbling stone. Something we stumble over, something we can't see, something that's different from our expectations. And Father, I know that the end times will probably be similar. The restoration of all things will probably be similar. None of us probably have every T crossed and every I dotted. But we all do await the hope of the restoration of all things. And Father, though, we know that you're waiting for all your people to repent. And that's what that's what the, uh, not delay, but seeming delay to us is for Jesus' return and the restoration of all things. But we still pray and ask, Lord, as John does in Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.